Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Mo, and I am an alcoholic addict. Uh, I'm very grateful to be here, grateful for my help, grateful for my sobriety. Uh, who I am, I am 66 years old. Uh, I'm originally from Iran. I came to the States in 1978. I did not come here to stay. I came here to party. So that's, uh, that's a part of my story. Uh, I wasn't under the bridge or on the, on the bench of a park, but I was a very functional addict and, uh, and a drunk. And uh, my story goes back to my childhood. Uh, we were in a middle or upper middle class family back home. Uh, I did have everything except the love from my father. Very nice man to the outsider, but he came in. The pressure from the, his outside work, he would bring it home. And uh, that's something that I try not to do, or at least uh, I, I don't like the word try. I did to the best of my ability. Uh, and uh, when he came home, if you didn't follow his rules or if he was not happy with what happened outside of work he would take it on the kids particularly me i was uh, i was a renegade from the get-go i don't know why you know i just uh, i am an atheist 100 and uh, and he was a religious man and i did not want it I, I just didn't believe some of his beliefs from the time that i was a kid i just couldn't believe that you know some uh, someone is up there and uh, it's going to take care of all of my issues and make me a good person that, that, that. So it's uh, so it didn't work for me. Uh, then uh, at the age of seven, I started to smoke cigarettes. At the age of eleven, I was introduced to opiate, opium. So I smoked it. Back home, opium is a uh, is socially accepted, particularly for people who are past 55, 60 years old. They say that hey. It's going to take care of our pain, but basically they want to get high. <laughs> That's very simple. And uh, yes, it does take care of you know some of the pain, but the pain is not that bad that you need to smoke it. I had a friend. It was in the we were in the sixth. Uh, I think we were in the sixth grade. That he uh, asked me. You know, we used to go to each other's house, and I went to his house one time. His father was uh, was a very uh, rich man, and they had a carriage house that their uh, uh, their gardener was staying there and the gardener was uh, he took he basically listened to my friend who was going to be someday his boss so he uh, he just provided everything he wanted so he asked me to go to to his place we went there and he first time I smoked some opium it was great I just had wow I forgot about all of my depression, my problems, my issues with my father. And that's something that, you know, it started me. And that's the high that I followed throughout my entire life until I became sober. Uh, it is true, once you have that high, the first high, you're never going to get it. And I didn't, but I chased it for a long, long time. Uh, at the age of 14, I was introduced to alcohol which uh, was another <laughs> another uh, uh, substance that I really enjoyed. Particularly when you mix the alcohol with opiates, it's at least in my case, uh, it was heaven. I really thought, you know, this, this is war, you know, because I forgot about, I masked everything that I had, all of my problems, and I enjoyed the moment. And the moment, uh, when I look at it back now, uh, I still like, if I say to you that I don't like my alcohol and my drugs, I'm lying to you. I absolutely love my alcohol and my drugs. What I hate more than what I like is, are the consequences. I absolutely hate those consequences. I don't want to go through them anymore because it put me in a place that I was stuck. I couldn't go forward. I couldn't go backward. I just had to and, and that's where I came to the point that I came to AA. Now, let's go a little bit far, further. You know, I, uh, I graduated from uh, high school and uh, uh, 
I went to the army for two years, uh, six months in the in the boot camp, which I think that it helped me tremendously. It made me, you know, realize that uh, uh, the war that you look at is not something that you know, it's not that hard. You know, once you got in there, you know, you got to listen to the orders, which I wasn't good, but I I I went through it, and uh, after the six months, I uh, I was working in a uh, military hospital, which it was very relaxing. Um, for 18 months that I was in that uh, facility, uh, my drugging and drinking really went to a different height. After I finished, I, I wanted to come. I have an anchor in Cleveland, Ohio, which where I am. He's a physician. He works uh, at back then. He was an associate professor, and he taught at the University Hospital, Case Western Reserve University, and a part of Cleveland Clinic, which he... Uh, I thought, you know, I come here. I didn't want to come to the United States. I came here just to see him because uh, uh, I wanted to be in Europe, was closer to home. And also I had lots of friends from high school that they were in Europe. So I just wanted to go there and be with them. But I came here and uh, those of you, who, I don't know if some of you remember how, how old you are. In 1979, there was a revolution back home in Iran. And then I decided to stay here. I went to Kent State University. Uh, and uh, I met my wife in the second year. And uh, we just got married for whatever reason. I just enjoyed talking to her, being with her. Both of us, we drank. Uh, but she didn't use that much here and there, maybe, you know, just a line here and there, uh, but I enjoy it. My problem is uh, I love, I'm an, I'm an addict, you know, I like anything and everything out there. Uh, that old saying, they say that what's your, uh, what's your uh, addiction? What do they say? They say that more. You know, or what's your drug of choice? It's more, and that was mine. You know, I, uh, except acid. I just didn't want to have that trip. I saw the characters that they were jumping from the seat to the roof and doing stupid things. I just didn't care for that. But everything else I tried. But the two, I always came back to the two that I love. And plus it was Coke. So I have three lethal addiction that I had to the three substance that I couldn't let it go. Uh, Make the long story short, a party at school, but somehow I graduated from, uh, I got my uh, BA in accounting. Uh, and I came to, uh, I came to Cleveland. Actually, it was in Kent, Ohio. Kent, Kent State is famous in the United States because in 1970, there were four students. They were shot dead by the National Guard because they were protesting against the Vietnam War. And uh, that's what that university is famous. But at the same time, it's in this it's in this little town, they call it Kent, Kent State University, and it's a party town. It's uh, like any other college town uh, that you go to, you know, and I, I really enjoyed it, but I had to now I'm married. My wife got her master and she got the job. She is, she is the breadwinner and I didn't want to just be there. I just wanted to work. So I came to Cleveland and I started to work for uh, my uncle's brother-in-law, whom I called uncle. And uh, that uncle, you know, he, he was very successful. He was in the import-export business. What it is, they call it custom house broker. Custom house brokers, anything that you want to you know, import to the States, you have to go to through customs. And in order to go through customs, there are a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork. And basically the custom house brokers, they are paper pushers, and they make a lot of money. And uh, we used to do, we had an office in Cleveland, one in Baltimore, and then uh, we had another office in New York, but the one in Baltimore and Cleveland, those are the two that we really, uh, they generated a lot of you know income or uh, sales for the company. Uh, we did about 200 files back then. I remember, you know, when I got the, we had, we got the first fax machine among a lot of people. And the fax machine was as big as a 
bedroom. That's how big the fax machine was. That was the beginning of that. They call it the, the Fujitsu or uh, text machine. And I, I never forgot that. And uh, we got the computer. That computer was uh, the, uh, uh, we finally got a Mac, Macintosh, but before that it was an IBM and that was a big ass machine that we had to work with. But we, we started, we, we were doing by hands and by people for about 100, 125. Once we got into fax and we had, you know, a computer, we were doing about four or 500 files a day. And we worked five days a week. And you were talking about, you know, somewhere between the $200 to $600, basically about $300 average that we made. You multiply that by 200, it's a lot of money. And uh, my boss, it just got to his head. He became a big gambler and he just basically lost that the business and everything else. But I was lucky prior to that happen. I knew that something is going to happen because he wasn't, he didn't have a vision. His vision was just, you know, women and having fun. And he arrived at that business and he didn't know how to manage it, how to have uh, some vision for his later on. So he had to file bankruptcy and he lost everything. But prior to that, I started, I went on my own and I came uh, to uh, uh, to an article back, back, it was in 1983, they were talking about cell phone business. But prior to that, I was in the IMTS business uh, when I left his company. Uh, IMTS is Improved Telephone Mobile System, which uh, basically, you know, it was the beginning of uh, the mobile era uh, and people would put these big ass phones in their in their machine in their trunk and then you had about 12 channels that you could talk and all the time they were busy and if you knew someone in the company you could listen to people's you know conversation which it was very interesting unfortunately well fortunately i did to listen to a lot of you know conversation not without people's knowledge uh, and this is the time I'm, i am really concentrating, I'm doing my drugging on the weekend, but during the week, I was drinking a lot. It got to the point that at five o'clock, I could not get, wait to get to a bar. To you know, I had a few spots that I would go to, and uh, I would go there, and at some point, you know, the, the bartenders, they knew what I wanted. And at the same time, you know, as I'm going through this and I see some of the consequences that they were always late or did stuff, you know, that I shouldn't do it in my business. And I did them, but I didn't know why. I thought, you know, it was normal. People do these things, but you know, it was because of my drinking and drugging. So come uh, uh, my, then cell phone business came in. I got into it in the beginning. Uh, back in 1983, there was between, uh, at least in the States, I think it was, you know, basically it happened, it started here uh, between uh, Chicago and New York. They said, I'm sorry, Chicago and Washington, D.C., Motorola used the first cell phone. The cell phone business or the cell phone technology has been around since in the 40s, but US government was using that and they were not sharing that with the public. And back then they started to do that. Uh, so uh, I had a great business up to 2004. I had, uh, I had over 200 employees, 28 locations, uh, having a lot of, you know, basic stuff that, you know, things that people think they are important to them, money, cars, uh, having a, uh, an access to a private jet, all kinds of crap that people think that it's important. Today, I frankly don't care about them because I wasn't happy. I didn't, I didn't, have, I didn't have that peace of mind. Every time uh, it was just more and more and I never got what I, I, I wanted. It was more of, you know, material stuff, which is not, which is not important, you know, my, today, my life, what is important to me is my granddaughter. What's important to me is my daughter, my family, my wife, people that I associate with. Uh, this, this fellowship is very, very important to me. Uh, so uh, 2004, uh, I was, uh, I was going to see 
two of my locations and I had a bad accident and it was, I was listening to music. I'm a music buff. I was listening to music as I was driving down the highway going from Cleveland to Akron area. Uh, someone hit me and I didn't realize how bad it was. I just opened my eyes. I, I heard a big noise. The next thing I was in the, um, in the in the hospital that actually i went they put me in the emergency room after that you know i went to a room i don't remember anything actually they said that at the time that it might be permanent because i had to decode frontal lobe hit which my head hit the uh, airbag and i had six bags in the car that they imploded and you are uh, looking at the car that was about six months less than less than six months, I think about more than probably about eight months old that I got it brand new. It was so bad. The insurance company had to total the car. As most of you know, insurance companies, they don't want to total a car. They want to do to the best that they can fix everything. The guy who hit me, he had 10,000 minimum uh, insurance, which was $10,000. And he filed bankruptcy immediately. So here I am, I had to go after my own insurance company, which it took a while, but at the same, once I came out of that uh, mini coma, whatever you want to call it, I was as depressed as they could could come. I couldn't remember anything. Now I'm going back, my memory just, I remember probably about 50 to 60%. And now uh, I see Mark and I say, Mark, hey, how are you doing? I don't know who he is, but I see his face. I remember his face. And I would just fake it. You know, they say fake it to make it here. I definitely faked that to make it there. So, uh, and then uh, I had a, when I was in the hospital, there was a psychiatrist came in, which I knew from before. Uh, she became my pain medication doctor or pain management doctor, which she did not have any business to get into that. So I started from Darvisset, I graduated to Oxy30s, which they call it Roxy's. So I'm, uh, uh, we started to have a little business with each other. She was a money hunger. So, and, and I realized that as you know, most of us, we, uh, as at least I was a conniving, slick SOB as a druggie and as a drunk. I realized how I could manipulate her and I sure did the best of my abilities. She started to write prescription for me six scripts a week for 120. You'd realize back then it wasn't that big of a deal, you know, pills today, pills, you know, is they, they treated the same as heroin. Back then it was just for pain. And the company Pharma, was really pushing that to doctors that they write more scripts on those. So I was getting these scripts a week and I had a little, you know, racket that I go from north, northeast of Ohio, which you know, was start from uh, Ashtabula and I go all the way down to Cincinnati. You look at what, probably about, you know, four hours drive. So you are talking about, you know, four or 500 miles between the top to the bottom of the state. And I knew exactly how to do it. I had the lab with this. Uh, it was the beginning of the iPads. And I had my iPad. I knew which pharmacy I was going until one of them figured that out that, hey, this guy is, is not legit. I'm giving the doctor $100 a script. So it's about six scripts, $600 she makes a week. And you're talking about four weeks, 2400 She didn't care. And I didn't care because, you know, now I'm king of the hill. Every place I go, I don't need to have money. I have my pills. I can, you know, walk into any casino to just give pills to people. And they give me cash. Instead of cash, they give me chips. So it was a horrible life. You know, people wish that they were in my shoes. It's so messed up that you wake up from one city two days later on. You know, I was in the, uh, in uh, West Virginia in a casino, and I opened my eyes, I think about three days later, or two two or three days later, I don't recall it exactly how many days, that I was in St. Louis, Missouri, 
which is sad. You know, I could have killed people. I could have killed myself. I could have done a lot of damage in between. And, uh, but I still didn't learn my lesson. So it's uh, December 17, 2012. The night before I'm out, I'm enjoying myself. I'm drunk as skunk. Came home about four or five in the morning. About nine o'clock, my daughter came in and knocked on my door and said, Dad, wake up. I have a, a very sleep apnea, particularly when you start to do drugs, it gets worse. And I was in my room. She said, get up. I thought, you know, I was dreaming. She said, Dad, get up. I never want to forget that face. She was just white as they could be, her face. And she said, Dad, you need to get up. I said, okay, what's going on? She said, there are a few people that are in the living room. They're waiting for you. I walk into the living room. I see eight police officers and also this guy with a white rope, which was uh, from pharmacy board. And all of them, they are packed. They have their hands on their guns. They think that, you know, they got Pablo Escobar. So uh, I looked at my wife and I, uh, I never want to see her in that situation anymore. It just, you know, it was absolutely horrifying, I think about it. So I said, may, may I help you? They said, well, we want to pick up two of the instrumental trafficking, which basically they were talking about my cars. I never went to a pharmacy to get my drugs, to get my scripts. I always threw, went to a drive-thru and I gave, gave it to them and I gave my money and I left. And I always had a baseball cap and I pulled it all the way down, but they had the license plates with the camera. So they said they came here to pick up my two cars that I was going most of the time to pick up my stuff. I, and he said, well, you have two choices. You, have, you can either Give me the keys or we are going to just, you know, we will tow them. I said, well, I have the keys in my bedroom. Can I go get them? So I go to my bedroom. I just look at, you know, from the window to see what's going on. I see all around my house. They are, this is, <laughs> I have FBI there, people from tobacco, uh, fire, tobacco, armed fire, whatever the hell it is. People from this local uh, police, which it was solar from the Cleveland police and also from uh, the sheriff department. All of these guys are just, you know, surrounding my house. I look at, you know, I have a driveway, probably it's about 100, 125 feet. All of them, they're black and white cars, police cars. And I saw a big tow truck. I said, oh, wow. I walked in there, I gave them the keys. I said, is there anything I can do? I thought they were gonna take me with them that day but he threw a big stack of paper to say that, you know, you can, uh, you can show that if you have an attorney, you can show it to your attorney. If you don't, we're going to provide you with the legal help. I said, no, I have an attorney. And I called my attorney after they left. I couldn't even, I, I just, I saw my wife, you know, she's crying, you know, she even can't talk. My daughter, she just went to her room and she is bawling. So I called him and said, hey, Jay is my friend, a friend of mine. I said, Jay, I have, uh, I got, no, I told him, I'm just still lying, lying, bullshitting him. I said, I don't know why these people came in, this and that. He said, what did they do? He said, they gave me this, you know, sack of papers. He said, go to the right-hand side, up there, there's a number. Why don't you give it to me? I gave it to him. So I'll call you back in five minutes. He called me less than, you know, probably a minute. He said, get your ass in my office right now. He said, finally, you did it. And he was right. Uh, going back between 2005, 2004 and 2012, that was this. This was a major thing. I ended up to be shot at. I ended up to be dry, you know, being in the uh, Oklahoma prison two times. Uh, I ended up to. Uh, to have a few heart attacks, which I'm very lucky I'm still alive. Uh, but this one was a big one. This one was something that, you know, I, uh, as someone, you know, I don't, I don't remember a lot of stuff that I did because I was so high. And the reason that I was caught, that, you know, after pharmacy board found that, that what was going on, they never told me anything. They followed me for about a year and a half. And they had all kinds of information about me. That's how why they came to my house. 
make the long story short, there's a lot of stuff in between. Make the long story short, it's it cost me uh, a lot of money, a lot of money to to do nothing basically. You know, they end up. You know, they they said that you know uh, they had uh, between 2006 and 2012. She wrote over 14,000 pills for me, which basically, if you equip them, it's basically they look at them the same amount as heroin. Which my sentence was 16 and a half years behind bars and 10 years on probation. Uh, we. One of the things that they couldn't get me on, I never sold anybody my pills. I never did them. I always, I was very careful with that. You know, just, you know, you watch all these shows and everything. So I, I never sold it to anybody. So the, uh, we negotiated with them. I ended up to go to uh, end up with uh, three years mandatory in the prison and two years after that was going to be in on probation the judge was very kind the judge reversed that so he gave me two years probation without two years prison time without the mandatory and three years probation which it was absolutely you know if you have mandatory on your sentence there is no way that you can get away with that you have to serve your three years but two years that she gave me, I went to the prison and they have a program because I never had any cases. They call it, you know, uh, IOP. No, it's uh, in prison program, IPP, in prison program, which basically you go through a, uh, it's like a an army booth that you go there for uh, four months. And then three months after that, you'll be in a halfway house, which I finished. But I was in a very bad camp. We call it, you know, behind bars, and they call it, you know, it was uh, it was one of those places that people who have uh, life sentence they go there to die. It's a depressing place, absolutely. I, I tell you this, I never want to even see those kind of, you know, I don't, I don't want to even go to the area of those places. That's how depressing that whole environment is. So I came up. I still didn't learn my lesson. I still didn't, you know, it's, that's how conniving this addiction is, you know, it just doesn't leave you alone. I still did the same crap after a while. I went there, you know, after my, what I was doing until it came to, uh, uh, and I, I <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff in my life. I went to a lot of, re, you know, I went to a few rehabs. One of them, I stayed there for 76 days. I came out after two months, I started to do the same crap. But in any case, I got to, uh, uh, I am, it's, uh, it's the February, 2020. I go to this casino in Cleveland and I, I went there on Wednesday night and I played there. I stayed there until uh, Friday noon. And I don't remember how I stayed it, but I remember I, on Friday morning, I was going to get more money to gamble from my bank. And I looked at myself in the in these mirror windows and I looked at myself, I said, wow, do I want to die like this? And I realized I couldn't go forward. I couldn't go backward. I couldn't do anything. And I remember I went there and I lost the money that I paid. I said, I'm not going to do this, but I did it anyhow. I lost the money and I got in my car. I got my wife called, said, where have you been for the last two days or three days? I said, it's not my fucking business. And I got into it. It wasn't pleasant. And I just went and I went to a hotel and uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't have the balls to kill myself. I didn't want to do it, but I wanted to go to sleep and die and not to wake up. And uh, eventually I talked to my, uh, uh, my psychologist and she said, I wanted to stay in the hotel, do what you need to do. Don't do anything. Don't do any drugs, but come to see me on Monday afternoon and your wife is going to be here and we're going to have a talk and I'm glad I did that but uh, I didn't gamble but I still did drugs and drinking uh, 
And finally, at that time, uh, I have a lot of respect for these ladies to so do me a favor. I want you to go to this program. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an outpatient program, but uh, you have to go through this program for uh, uh, three or five days that you have to be, it's intense. But after that, you have to just go through the IOP. I said, fine. I, I didn't know what to do. I said, that's fine. And I was drinking and drugging until the day that I went to check myself in. I, I didn't think I was going to go in there that day. I went there to just sign up. And I said, when do you think, you know, it was, I think it was Wednesday. I, I thought it's going to be Monday that I was going to go there. She said, come in tomorrow morning and we're going to start the program. I went there. I was so dirty that it took them almost uh, I think two and a half, three days. I, I was dirty on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, Sunday, and Monday I went there, I was still dirty because you have to drop every time you go there. So that's when my journey started. And that was uh, March 5th of 2020. Uh, the people were saying that, you know, things are gonna get better. But after a few, maybe about you know, the week, the first week, things were better. Things were much, much better than what, where I came from. I was just so grateful that I got into some sort of program that could get me out of that misery that I was in. And that was the 12-step program. Uh, uh, I, uh, I, I had a, a temporary program uh, sponsor who introduced me to my current sponsor. My current sponsor, he is a, he's a believer. And he's a, uh, uh, he's a Jewish fellow. He has over 20 years of experience. And uh, I just liked him as a person. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, I'm a non-believer. He said, well, I don't care as long as you stay sober. And uh, one of the best things that he did for me, he said, you know what? We are not going to play with this 12-step program. We're going to go through them as fast as we can. And uh, his philosophy was the first three steps is the give up. The, the, sec the uh, four, five, six, and seven, they are the, uh, the cleanup. And uh, eight and nine is a makeup. And uh, 10, 11, 12 is the keeper. And he said, it's going to take us between, uh, it depends on the step four, how long you're going to you know, mess around with that. But if you do that, you know, the way I tell you to do it, we can do this in you know, less than 60 days. And she, he was absolutely correct. We did, the, we, I basically finished the entire program less than 30 days, less than three months, which it was great. I am glad I did it. You know, I didn't want, you know, today I do a lot of stuff because of those days that I went through the program. And that's uh, when the Zoom started. This platform is the best thing that happened for addicts and alcoholics. Because without the Zoom platform, there are a lot of people out there that they didn't know how to deal with their addiction. One of the good things about this the Zoom platform is for me, regardless of when, what time or where I am, I always can get into a meeting, which it makes me, makes a tremendous difference in my sobriety. Uh, if I get, if I get into my head, I don't let, I don't sit there to wait for, to see what's going to happen. I get into a meeting. I come to see you guys. I tell you exactly what, where I am. And I listen. I don't follow everything that everybody says. I listen to their suggestions. I am not one of those people to say, go to any length. I'm not going to go kill someone to stay fucking sober. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go to any length without hurting myself or anybody else. That's how I do it. This is for my side. And I always stay within who I am. You know, uh, we have uh, over 8 billion people in this world. And those of us who are we are addicted, we have, and we have different fingerprints. Our all of <laughs> addiction 
and alcoholism are, are different. They're not the same, but we have the same goal to stay sober. And one of the things that I realized for my sobriety is this fellowship. It's the best thing happened to me. It's, you know, I look at, you know, I had a fellowship before, and that was a bar with a bunch of drunks and a-holes like me. I come here, I talk to people, and you are the same characters that I knew before, except you're sober. You, you are the same. You are, you are in my tribe. You are my tribe. You are the people that I, you can understand where I am, what I do, who I, I can't bullshit you. You know, you call me on my crap. So the other thing that I learned from my experience, I am very, very proactive. I don't wait something that's going to help me. If I, uh, one of the problems that I have is the old rituals. I love to go to, to the old places. I love to see my old friends. I love to do the old stuff that I used to do. I don't go there anymore. I don't go even to, uh, if I have to go from point A to point B, and I know that it's going to be a shorter cut if I go to some places that I used to be, I take the longer route. Because you know what? I don't want to even have that urge to do it. I don't, you know, I, uh, I look at it like this every day. This is a lifestyle that has given me a lot of opportunities to go where I want to go. I'm not going to mess it up. And in order for me not to mess it up, I have to accept it that I have to practice what I do every day to stay sober. I go to sleep every night. This is a whole saying. Sober, I wake up a, a raging drunk uh, addict. So I have to work on my program on a regular basis. And my program is not the same as everybody else's program. You know, I there's stuff that uh, it, it doesn't work for me. I cannot stand to go to a uh, a traditional you know meeting anymore. I used to be able to handle them, but if, now even if I go to here and there, you know, I I have to leave and uh, to a traditional meeting that someone asked me to go there. And uh, the first thing I introduce myself more alcoholic addict. And I am an atheist. Because you know what? Uh, for me, that's a service. There are people that they're sitting in that meeting, maybe that they are not, they don't like what they are hearing about the God stuff. And I tell you, if they can come to me, they can talk to me, and they have done that. You know, they, people say, hey, we don't like this. Then I say, you know what? You don't have to be there. There are meetings that you can go. And I just give them the list of the meetings that are out there. And there are a few of them that I see them. I never thought that they're going to stay with the program. And they are today. And they are, they are sober. They're enjoying their life. And uh, uh, I tell you, I'm going to wrap it up here. It's been, uh, I don't know how long, maybe about, you know, 35, 40 minutes that I've been running my mouth. And, you have 20 more minutes, honey. You're welcome to wrap it up. But you, you have 20 more minutes if you want them. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, well I, uh, let me tell you a story about, you know, what happened to me in, uh, in 2009. 2009, my, uh, uh, my daughter was graduating. Actually, my older daughter, after my accident, she could not stand what I was doing. You know, this good father that I was, you know, yes, I was, I was drinking. Yes, I was, you know, here and then drugging, but I never let my kids know about my drugging. That was something that I kept it aside. And I did everything for them. I took them any place that I was, uh, even I, if they gave me a trip because of, you know, my performance or whatever, I always took them anywhere I went, you know, including Hawaii, you know, to Virgin Islands, wherever it was, I took them with me. And they had always a great time. But when I went through what I was going through, my addiction, uh, I became a very selfish, self-centered person. So uh, she didn't want to have anything to do with me. She graduated in college, in, uh, high school in 2005. In 2006, uh, we, she decided to stay as far as, as she could stay away from me. She wanted to go to either to uh, San Jose 
California or she wanted to go to New York, but we settled for New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So she went there and um, I used to make an excuse to say, I need to go to see her, which it was, I don't know if it was even, I don't think it was. I think about it today because I just wanted to get high between Cleveland and Albuquerque. Yes, it was good to see her, but it, my, my entire intention was to just get high and drive and have fun and stay in the casinos, you know, as I'm going down there. So I'm, uh, uh, this particular trip, I am going to see her. I get into uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, I went to this casino and I'm just running my mouth. Uh, uh, this guy was, he, he was a big guy and he was running his mouth. And uh, I said, young man, why don't you put your, uh, take your skirt off and put your pants on and then start to play with me. And that was the wrong thing to say, because this guy was a friend of the pit boss. So uh, make the long story short, the, in the reservation, which is this casino in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was on a reservation. They don't have police. They just basically, they manage everything themselves and they have sheriff. They came in, they picked me up. They kept me in the sheriff department. They went because I was in the hotel that was a part of the casino. They go there and they take, uh, look at, you know, take inventory of what I had in the room. And they knew that I had some weed and I had some a pipe. So uh, it, I was there probably from midnight to four in the morning. They finally said, came saying, you know what? You can't stay in this hotel. You need to go. You need to go to check, you know, clean your room and just get out of here. I said, okay. I'm just happy that I'm going to get the hell out of there. I go to the room. This sheriff walks behind me. And he sees that, you know, he comes and say, hey, what is this? And I said, well, it's, it's, that's something it means. My room said, no, 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 no. This is not something that you can have in Oklahoma, which is true. In Oklahoma back then, you could kill someone, get away with that. But if you had a little bit weed or blow, that was a no-no. They could throw you in the, in the jail and throw the keys away. So uh, it cost a lot of money. And uh, because I had some money, you know, I just you know, bailed myself out. So I have a record in Oklahoma. Comes in, it's right before her graduation. She's a valid Victoria, very good kid, did a lot, you know, she she was four point student, did a lot of good things. So we had, and we had a Honda Pilot. She said that, I, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to have that car. I said, sure. So I said, I'm gonna take it to you. I'm gonna bring it to you. So I decided not to go through Oklahoma. I said, you know what? I'm gonna go through this, through Kansas, you know, Missouri, and then I'm gonna go through just maybe about, you know, 25 miles that it's in Oklahoma. Then you get to Texas. So the night before I am in St. Louis and I'm partying, I didn't sleep. So I woke up the next day, I'm driving. So I finally found my way. It's about eight, nine o'clock the following day that I, see this sign, it says Tex. I didn't read the whole thing, it's Texahoma. It's one of those cities that is half in Texas, half in Oklahoma. So I go to this, you know, uh, 7-Eleven or pantry, whatever it was, and I'm tired, I'm running my mouth like a toilet. And there is a lady there with her son and her son sees my cap that I have this Cleveland Cavaliers cap. And he said, hey, I'm a fan of LeBron I said, oh, Good, I'm from Cleveland. I, we start to talk about the team and the mother thought I am, uh, maybe I'm a brother of Osama bin Laden. I don't know what. She said, let's get the hell out of here. They go, they leave. And apparently this lady <laughs> lives next to the sheriff. So they, she goes there, she goes to her man and I'm still hanging around there. You know, she, apparently she took my license plate. <laughs> from where it's, it's Ohio, you're in Ohio in Oklahoma. She knew that, you know, I'm from there. So she she took the license plate, she goes there and she gives it to this sheriff. And then, you know, that Oklahoma, <laughs> Texahoma is maybe two streets, the whole city, the whole place. So I am, uh, and now I'm talking to the, to the person who is manning the place. His name is Brandon. 
And he's talking, says, I'm a rocker. I hate this place. I said, I'm going to New Mexico. And I know a few people. Why don't you get in my car? We go there. I'll take you there. I said, my mother, as soon as he said, my mother, in my mind, I said, okay, he is a mama's boy. But at the same time, I didn't want to be an asshole. I said, you know what? I respect that. You stay here. With, you know, you need to stay here. And he said, hey, do you have anything on you? I'm smelling like fucking, you know, like I was in a... Uh, in a in a crack house that they were smoking weed so i smelled so much like weed so he said do you have any anything i said yeah the pharmacy is open we have everything so i i said what do you want I said how about little weed i said sure let me just go to my car i'm going to give it to you then i'm going to get on the road as i'm as we are walking out this is my car two cruisers they came like that and they basically put the push me in, put me in a corner that I wouldn't get away. So he said, Mo, get the hell out of here. I said, what do you mean? He said, do you see those? I said, oh, shit. So I get in my car. I just floored it. I said, fuck this shit. I'm not going to hang around with these guys because I knew that if they catch me in Oklahoma, it was, I, I, I wouldn't know what was going to happen to me. So I, I started to run and they start to come after me. I'm running away, basically. And they saw and they are saying, you Honda pilot, you know, license number from whatever, from Ohio. Why don't you pull over? I said, fuck that. No, not today. And I have about a pound of little weed and I have over an ounce of blow and I have a lot of pills, which I didn't give a five pills. They were prescription. So I'm just, as I'm driving, I'm just throwing all the shit away out. And I see a few lights, you know, uh, blue, white and red. I said, oh shit, this is a spike time. You know, basically spike, they throw the shit on the road, the, your tires go flat and they come and get your ass. Oklahoma is very flat. I said, ah, oh, this shit is not going to happen. They are on the left side of the highway. I just went on the right and I got away from them. And I see the sign says, Texas, welcome to Texas. I said, oh, good. All of a sudden I see a sea of lights. I said, oh, this is not good. I got maybe about four or five hundred close to them. Bang, bang, bang. These motherfuckers, they shot my car 13 times, seven of them by my gas tank. They wanted to blow my ass up because you know what? It's easy for them. They don't have to explain it to anybody. They said, this guy was running away. So the car stops, stop. And then uh, I never forget this little short, you know, stocky you know, guy came in, grabbed me by the neck, pulled me out. They had fun with me. They coughed me so bad that my left hand, I had to go to ter therapy for about, you know, six months. I couldn't move it. It was so bad. I couldn't even move my fucking hand. So uh, they take me there because it originated from, I was in the, in the Sherman County, which is in Texas. They took me there, but because it was, it, it happened in Oklahoma, I had to go to the Oklahoma side that 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 mistake i make the long story short listen to this they put me in jail and this jail in oklahoma and texas that that whole area it seems that they don't have enough dentists there is no teeth on anybody and there's all tattoos all over the fucking body so the jailer is one of them i finally got talked to him i said hey i need my medication and guess what is my medication? It's oxys. Back then, they really didn't know what the hell that damn thing was. And uh, I had some uh, uh, Percocet and a few other things that I don't remember. So I am getting high in the fucking cell. And I'm thinking, instead of thinking that, you know, I am screwed. I'm, you know, I took it as a badge of honor. I said, oh, look at this asshole. They even don't know what's up. I'm getting high in the, in the prison. That trip cost me basically the money that I had for my kids' college. That's pretty fucked up. To this date, I am embarrassed even to talk about it, but I don't have any problem to talk about it to you folks because you know where I'm coming from, how painful it is. And, uh, and after that, that's, I still went through the, pro, the, the whole thing that I ended up to go to jail for uh, instead of uh, staying in prison for 
two years, I went to the IPP program. I came out, uh, it was less than a year I came out, but uh, staying in a cell, I don't recommend it to anybody. It's, uh, it's horrible. And, uh, there are in the United States, 7% of the population that they go to jail or prison. And I am at that fucking 7%. It's not something that I'm proud of. And I tell everyone, please do yourself a favor. If you are, if you are uh, doing this, you know, if you are drinking, drugging, or whatever, get some help. And that's what my message is to everyone. You know, just go get some help. Get this shit out of your system. We are the slave of this. We are paying, you know, I look at it like this, particularly in this country. Don't tell me that, you know, they cannot stop the fucking drugs. They can. But what it is, now they, they give the drug to people, they put them in prison. And now the prison system is fucking private. You know, it's very good. You know, hey, they create the product, they create the product, they sell it, and they make money. We are unfortunately the commodity. You know, I look, that's how I look at it. I don't know. I, most of the people that I know, when they do drugs and they do alcohol, they end, end up in prison if they don't kill anybody or if they don't kill themselves. So it's uh, uh, today the life I have, I'm not going to. I'm not going to change it for anything. It's not that I have money or any of that crap. Yes, I have enough that I can survive. I have a good life. But I I have a peace of mind. I can't put a price on that. That's invaluable to me. I enjoy my granddaughter. I, you know, she's not here. She's in Albuquerque. But I Zoom with her every week. I get a video of her on a daily basis for my daughter or a picture, which is, you know, I enjoy. Those are the little things in life that I didn't value today. And I realized how valuable they are to me. And it's uh, it's, it's a good life. It's, it's a life that I'm enjoying it. It's a life that I, uh, I am very at peace. Uh, I'm not planning to die. <laughs> You know, before I didn't give a fuck if I died. Today I want to stay alive. I want to see. I want to. I want to do more living. I was existing. I don't want to exist. I want to live. I want to enjoy life. And uh, it's been enjoyable to be here with every one of you. And thank you very much for listening to my story. Love every one of you. And with that, I'm gonna pass. Thank you.